sirens busy jiving. Guess I'll make my move. Crazy feet on Robin Eve. Nothing left to lose. Valley's bleeding anguish. No one looks at me. I'm running out of rope. Only one place left to flee when voodoo strikes. Tear apart your head when voodoo strikes You wish that you was dead when voodoo strikes It'll tear apart your head when voodoo strikes You wish that you was answer to Annie Leibovitz, who has taken some of Rock's most iconic images. He's also the front man for the band Tumbling Dice, the Black Belts. He's also a third down Black Belt. I'd like to welcome Richard Crawley to the Voodoo Room. All right, how did you get into becoming a photographer, Richard? We'll start from there. Wow. Well... <coughs> The real answer is I was having a pillow fight with my brother. <laughs> well, no, it's not true. That's how I've got my first 35 mil camera, but that's later on. I got given, to answer your question, literally I still have it up there. There's a box brownie on that top shelf. I got given that when I was seven years old. You know, it's one of those ones where you, you hold it down, Hasselblad-like, you hold it down at your waist level and you look through it. And Oh, Okay. And and you uh, are you familiar with a box brownie? Is? I, I I know what it's, they look like. I'm not familiar with them, but I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's the most basic camera you can possibly buy. Yeah, I mean, there's it's it's got everything. It's not even a focus. I mean, there's like no focus. There's no aperture control. There's no shutter speed control. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. Yeah. So you just have to rely on what's called the latitude. That's the sort of what the film will resolve. You've only got one exposure, in fact. That's it. So I was giving what... How, how would you load the film into something like that? Oh, you just open the back and load it. It's okay. a roll-on. It's, it uses 620 film. Okay. And that's... Uh, 620 is kind of this big-size film. Uh, it's not like 35 mil. It's, it's, it's even bigger than two and a quarter square mm-hmm. in inches. And... Um, and two and a quarter square is the Hasselblad format, as you as you might know. And but anyhow, um, yeah, because because it's a big negative though, literally about that long, you could make what's called contact prints, which were big enough to look at. So that actually you didn't have to enlarge the negative to make a print that was um, sort of viewable, even if it is only like you know three by two and a half inches or whatever, three and a half by two and a half. Uh, and that's why at the age of seven, I was able to teach myself how to uh, develop films and then make contact prints. Wow. So I'm completely self-taught as a photographer. Yeah. I've never had a lesson in my life, really. So um, so you actually had access to a dark room at the age of no, seven? No, no, no. no I, I, <laughs> I made one in my okay. mother's, my parents' um, 
laundry and, and used to come out of it white-faced. You know, it was, it was terribly dangerous. I mean, there was no air at all. And I'm breathing all these noxious chemicals. And when you talk about developing chemicals, like in the, in the 1950s, so this yeah. was like late 50s I was doing this. Uh, I mean, they're really not safe. I mean, all banned today, all of them. There was no occupational know. health and safety back then. Richard. Oh, there was none of that. No, <laughs> no it's just no. getting there and do it. Yeah, that's it. You know, and suffer the consequences. And and yeah. actually, I've never had a great sense of smell since the age of eight. Thanks. <laughs> By the way, outside <laughs> <So, laughs> there. But yeah, I did learn how to make. Yeah, I did learn how to make prints very early on. That's really impressive things led and, and just to finish that story about cameras I, mean, I literally so so i could almost get it up the box really get box brownie anyhow it's just any boxy looking thing is up there but then you're looking like down and to see out but then when i was about 11 or 12 i was having a pillow fight with my brother on holidays, my younger brother, and I fell over and fractured my arm quite badly and, and la di da da And then, then my father, out of the goodness of his heart, lent me his, like a couple of weeks later, knowing I quite liked cameras even then, you know, lent me his 35mm Voiklander rangefinder camera. And and that was a 35mm camera where you just look through 35mm where you, you know. And... Um, I looked through that and how can I put it? The earth shifted. (laughs) (laughs) That was literally like that was holy fuck. Look at this. Yeah. You know, and I suddenly realized what, you know, the power of what photojournalism was. Even then I kind of got it immediately. It's like, yeah, you can do shit with this. You know, it's because 35 mil is so, um, you know, it's so portable and so movable and so um, sort of you can move with it. It's not like, oh, you've got to look through, you know. It's like, ooh, click, you know, it's that. And that, you know, so I've always been a street street photographer. Just turn this fan yeah. off. You know, I've always been a street photographer, yeah, not a studio photographer. And that kind of, that, that established that that was the way I was going to go. I wasn't going to be a... Because you have to remember then, you know, even when I started, when I was 20, so we're talking, you know, well, 1971, I was 20, right? So, I mean, the thing is, even then, uh, in fact, when I came to Australia, I got here in 1973, and even then, you know, in Australia, most photographers were either studio photographers or they were, you know, architectural or photographers or they were commercial photographers and there was a little bit of press but there wasn't much it was all very formulaic Mm -hmm. and to be honest I was ahead of the game even when I arrived then you know having come from England and absorbed a lot of the you know there was a lot of exciting photography in England then you know and and in Europe not just England and I kind of got a handle on this and yeah well whatever yeah you know it's sort of was a progression. Sure. But so I've always learned from looking at other people's photography. That's been my inspiration, you know, looking at the masters, the great people, you know. <laughs> yeah.
when was this in London? It, you were you actually were yeah. with your family? Yeah. I come from north of London actually. Okay. About twenty miles north of London, which in the sixties was only half an hour, forty-five minutes. I used to say it was forty-five minutes to the West End and Ronnie Scott's and more <laughs> importantly the Marquee, the Marquee yeah, Club okay. in Wardour Street in Soho, where all the bands were playing. Yeah, right. You know, like the Who or yeah, the yeah. Kings or the Stones yeah. or yeah. I mean, every Rod Stewart, the Face, yeah. everyone played, yeah. played there. You know, it was like awesome. But that was forty-five minutes with the roof down. Wow! That's <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> now it'd take you about four hours. You know, wow. with the traffic. <laughs> so, wow. Anyhow. Okay, so so I guess you've been asked a lot of these questions over the years, but could you run through the method you took to fake your ticket to see the Rolling Stones in 1973? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean that, that, yeah, that is, is a, and the, and the photo that I, I did grab a couple out of the, just went, oh, have I got an odd print? And, and so I, the, the photo that you're actually referring yes. to, this is a very small print. Can you see that? Yep. That, that's, that's the one that resulted the, which became, Pretty well known, to be honest. In fact, okay. probably, well, it is the most iconic live shot of the man ever taken, and, and that was sheer luck, but that's the way yeah. it was. But how I, how I came to take that photograph was interesting because I'd only been in this country three weeks, and I'd come out on the boat. I'd left with a 100 pounds sterling uh, and then arrived with nothing because I drank the whole lot on the boat. You know what I mean? You know, what do you do? He's 21. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it was. Yeah, it was 21. And uh, so, um, yeah, I arrived with nothing. I'd have a job to go to with Oxford University Press, as in book publishing. Paid, because this, this was three weeks after I'd arrived, and obviously you're paid monthly. Your internet connection is unstable, as just said. Oh, well, hopefully not. Anyhow, um, there we go. So I... Uh, playing a problem here ticket was five dollars i hadn't got any money i hadn't got five bucks i got nothing so i actually faked a press pass which said blue meanie press and that is quite 70s <laughs> and i got in and then i got down the front in the end which took a lot of doing sort of evading the levels of security Kuyong to get into the bottom tier you know and that and then i got 10 foot from the stage, and the stage is only about six foot, five foot, four foot, whatever. It wasn't very tall, unlike today when they're about 30 feet up in the air or something. And anyhow, like, yeah, so what happened then was, oh, shit, I shot 10 real quick. I've run out of film. I did have 50 cents, so I sort of waved this in front of another photographer, and he gave me a roll of film. And then the stones went into, into Midnight Rambler, and Jagger sort of whipping the stage, screaming, you know, do you hear about the midnight bang? You know, do you hear about the midnight rambler bang? And then he dropped down on his knees, right, and then just went, you know, and at that moment the crowd went like this, you know, because, you know, and I just went click. And it was number 36 on the reel, which for you uh, non-analog people out there means that it was the last shot on the reel. And... Mm. I mean, you know, what a bit of luck that was. Oh, totally. And it's funny, you know, sometimes you know, you know when you take a photo, you kind of know that 
you have a blinder and I, you know, when I took that, I knew I did. I mean, often you don't, you know, you go in the dark room and you muck around and you do this and, you, and then, whoa, yeah, that's pretty good. But I mean, in this case, so I went home and I worked all night in the dark room. And then I, the next morning I went and saw Molly Meldrum who had a magazine then called Go Set before he went on telly with Countdown. And, um, uh, yeah, and flogged it to him for, uh, you know, for the front page uh, of Go Set, the next, the next issue. And I even remember the headline of it. It said, The Greatest Show on Earth. And it was an amazing show. It, it was an incredible show. And, uh, but, yeah, that started the rock photography with me. So I did a lot of stuff in the, in, in the 70s, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's quite a story. Um, so, 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 yeah, so, yeah. so, so around that time and from the early seventies, you became a very prolific uh, photographer, taking photos of some of the great well, rock and roll artists. Well, no, as- I mean, I, I, yeah, I did in in sort of a few, and I got a couple of others here. I mean, from that era. So, I mean, I got to the point where I was so well known by the bouncers at Festival Hall, they just let me in. You know, I, I gave up sort of faking cards. Yeah, press passes. They yeah. just let me in, <laughs> yeah. you know, because I was there. Though I mean, and there's the muddy water. That's muddy waters, yeah. for instance. That's, that's um, amazing. Can you see? Yeah. yeah. And there's a nice story with that one because he wasn't well. I actually met him and shook hands with him backstage. Okay. At Festival Hall that night, and that was pretty awesome. I mean, that was a big highlight. Hello, 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 muddy waters. Yeah. Don't believe I'm shaking hands with you. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> It's like he's a really nice guy. And then, you know, and he said, I'm actually not feeling very well, you know. Um, I'm not feeling great at the moment, got a bit of flu or something. I so said, I'm going to sit down. So I said, well, that's fine, but do you mind if I, you know, take a few shots up the front and all that? He said, mm, you know, because I like getting in a little bit close around the sides. And, and he said, no, nah, it's fine. So, so he played this mind-blowing show, you know, just sort of like, oh, my God, you know. The, and what blew me out, actually, about that show was how good his voice is. I mean, you know, he's an incredible band leader, guitar player and everything, but Christ, as a singer, he's really good too. And, and well, anyhow, like, like, it all went really well, and then, but he's sitting down, and then suddenly he stands up and does this dance, and but I'm... I was changing films, you know, so I missed it. God, I missed the shot. And I thought, oh, he's got another show tomorrow night. So I went back and I just waited. (laughs) Guess what? He did it again. You know, he stood up for Teddy and I got the shot. And I like this because he's looking right at the camera. He's like, he saw me and he's just looking straight at me. He's like, hello, man. Yeah, uh, Yeah, so, you know, that really was fun. Yeah. And actually, the other festival hall shot I've got here, which is the same era, which was 1975, was Tina Turner, um, you know, the queen, the queen yeah. of rock and roll, as far as I'm concerned. You know, yeah, just, totally. And there she is blazing away pretty much through um, River Deep Mountain High. And that, that, that was that was special that show i mean you know i mean and i like the shot because none of it, you know this wasn't tina turner as such it was the icon tina turner review as it mm-hmm. was called then yeah and as you know pete you know like her life was a nightmare then because of ike turner was a mm. 
controlling uh, freak. A few things, couldn't yeah. I? You know, but he wasn't a nice person and um, he used to beat her up. And so I quite like the way this shot sort of, even though it's quite soulful, you've got this big black area that's slightly, for me anyhow, you know, everyone has their own. It's sort of suggestive of, well, I like, I, I like the Tina Turner shot because of this black area, you know, I, you know, of the fact that her life wasn't great then. Um, it's slightly suggestive. Anyhow, whatever. Actually, no one's really ever seen that shot before. <laughs> I haven't really done anything with it. But there we go. So you you would have multiple shots of different shots, would of, that be right? Like you've oh, got yeah, you've, yeah, yeah. Most that you of these shows, like you know, I'd shoot yeah. ten reels or something. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so you you you've got a backlog of photos that you haven't disclosed to the public. Is that right, or is it probably? You've just yeah, kept, yeah, no one's seen the Tina shot actually, um, or hardly. Yeah, I mean, for instance, yeah, I mean, look, I've. Yeah, I mean, some are, you know, the Jagger, you know, some are reasonably va the, the valuable in the sense I have a limited edition of the Jagger shot, richardcrawleystore.com for all yes. you folks out there. There's the plug. <laughs> um, but, I mean, yeah, and that, that includes also, I mean, you know, I mean, here's one of, of Rodney Stewart when he really was a rocker. You know, I actually, yeah. like, this is only a rough print, so you can probably see marks on it, but it's, I love this shot because it's a real it rock great. god shot for me. It <laughs> he is. was. I mean, this is when he was a shit-kicking rock star, you know, yeah. like, you know, with the faces. So we're talking 1974 live in the South Melbourne cricket ground, you know, with, with Ron Wood on guitar and the faces, you know, who were a really great rock band. I mean, you know. Yeah, totally. I mean, you've got to remember at that point they just put out, what did they just, they just put out Stay With Me about a year and a half before. I mean, Stay With Me, I think any, everyone would agree, is probably as good as anything the Rolling Stones ever did, probably, uh, you know, in, from the point of view of, of a shit-kicking rock song. And, and, and he was. I mean, and the interesting thing was within two years of this shot, you know, he's met Britt Eklund and sort of gone soft cock, to be quite honest. <laughs> That's sort of the my view. He went middle of the road. I mean, look, Atlantic Crossing and albums like that were hugely successful, but he did go M.O.R., you know, I think, yeah. you know, and became less of a rock rock and roller. Oh, well, he did some great stuff in the late 70s. I mean, um, Hot Legs and Do You Think I'm Sexy? I mean, they, they were pretty good. Are you not your, no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm more Gasoline Alley and okay. every picture tells a story, don't it? I mean, those albums, you know. Yeah. Because in the early 70s, he had, he used to put out his own solo albums. You know, remember that, Pete? As well as, as well as stuff with the faces. He was so well off, do you know this? Not, I don't know if you know, he, he made so much money in the early 70s. I mean, no wonder it might have turned his head slightly. I mean, he actually had two Lamborghini Muras at one point. Jesus Christ. I mean, those cars are now worth something like three million each. <laughs> it's ridiculous. He had two of, the f two of them. <laughs> Do you think he's still got them? I wonder if he's still got oh, them. I don't think he's got them still, no? no, no. Actually, Keith Richards' GTS Ferrari was just, oh, I muck around with old cars a bit, so yeah. I know this crap. Not that I've got Lamborghini, but yeah. So anyhow, like um, whatever. But you yeah, have an old, so you, you you have an old Porsche, don't you? 
I don't, you shouldn't say this. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> Cut. No, it's an old duty. It's a GT4 Ferrari, yeah. Oh, yeah, Ferrari, <laughs> yeah. yeah Dino, right. but that's yeah, the only yeah. vaguely affordable yeah. Ferrari there is, and I've had it 20 years. It was actually, it cost the same as a land, second-hand Land Cruiser when I bought it. It was either a second-hand Land Cruiser or a Ferrari. So I thought, and actually there was a serious reason. My brother had just died. My brother drowned in New Zealand, and I had to do something insane. Yes. Yeah, I sort of did. So I did. So you did. Yeah, anyhow. <laughs> there we go. Did Mick Jagger end up with the photo that you took, considering uh, that the st- at that stage the Stones were at their highest of success? Yeah, they were. At, they were the biggest band. You're absolutely right. 1973, they were the biggest band in the world. No question. And so for uh, you to make contact yeah. with them and, not, and let him know that you had the photo, how did that transpire? Uh, not on that stage, no, although it was probably, well, I personally didn't, but the photo sort of leaked out a bit, you know. I mean, it was in Go Set and then it was in newspapers a little bit illegally, I say. But anyhow, it was. And then without my permission is what I meant because yeah. I own copyright. But anyhow, that happened. And so I know he was aware. And then when he was out here in the 80s, um, I actually got him to sign. I've got this big signed one on the wall in which I know you've seen, you know, like in that other room. But anyhow, he, he um, yeah, so I got him to sign. That's when, yeah, these are these, there were three signed, three big ones. Okay. He kept one, I kept one, and the third one we decided to give to the Royal Children's Hospital Appeal. Beautiful. But, you know, there was it Channel 9, whatever it is, you know. Yeah, although I will say, it went for a lot of money, although I actually... <laughs> I'll be absolutely honest. I think probably what made that first prize, the the sort of first thing was my photo and something else, but the something else really was valuable. And that was a a strap signed by Eric Clapton. (laughs) So, yeah. Beautiful guitar. But anyhow, yeah, no, it was a good thing to do. But um, was that during Rod, um, Mick Jagger's solo? Yeah, it was. It was when he was having one of his famous spats with Keith Richards, and they, what was the name of that first album? It was She's the Boss or something. Yeah. You put that yeah. out. It must have been about 88. I never saw him play, but he played at the Corner Hotel, apparently. Yeah, I saw that concert at the. You went uh, to that, did I you? I went to that concert, yeah. Not to the one in the corner, I went to the one at the uh, tennis centre. Oh yeah, so uh, there must have been a warm up, the one at the yeah, and uh, uh, and Joe Satriani played guitar. Sorry, uh, Joe Satriani was playing guitar for him at that stage. Oh, that's right. And um, yeah, I was on the side. Band. Oh, oh, incredible band! And I was on the <laughs> I was on the side of the the stage type of thing, looking down straight at the stage, and I saw Mick come through because they had all these sort of curtains at every five meter interval, sort of things up up until the he gets to the band stage sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, there was this light wind coming through and then Mick just comes on. They start playing. They do about 16 bars and he comes in with a radio. Mike comes through and and you could just sense his aura and I just thought, no, what this? there's no other band or no other person that I've seen mm. with that type of aura on stage. I mean, he... Charisma, right? Charisma, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah well, incredible. He, he, look. You know, and what goes around comes around. Here I am with a band doing, 
as you know, one of the bands I got doing Rolling Stones material, yeah. and but it, hopefully in an authentic way. But you know, like for me, he's a he, he, you know, God, you can learn stuff from that guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's an amazing role, role model, like him or hate him. He's 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 a consummate performer, there's yeah. no question. Yeah, yeah totally. one of the greatest. Yeah, although you know what he says. You know, I was like that, you know, and I've, I sort of hold this photo up again, you know. You know what he says? He says, I've heard Jagger say this. He says, well, you know, yeah, I'm good at dancing, but honestly, I'll style all me moves off Tina. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he did. He did. Yeah. She was the one that started it. She was the ultimate raunchy dancer to start with, and he just nicked it all. But he's good. He's really good. Yeah, I've, I've just discovered a, another female uh, singer from the 70s, Betty Davis. Do you know who she was? Um, I, I'm not very familiar with her oh, stuff. Oh, man, but, you, you, yeah. you'll have to listen to her because uh, I've just come across her. She's still alive. Betty Davis. Betty, da- Betty Davis. And she was really raunchy. She was, and she was married to Miles Davis uh, for a little while. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah you I saw him see. live. I saw Miles Davis live in the late eighties in Melbourne, and that was a highlight. I could imagine. Bloody hell, it was. Anyhow, I'll remember. Yeah. So I've been. I, I had a look at your, some of your photos because you obviously uh, you lived in uh, St Kilda for a little while, mm. and you took some iconic St Kilda shots with your camera and especially the one with uh the twins in the uh at Shahrazade's is that correct? correct. Is it Atkins Street. Atkins yeah, Street? well I mean yeah. I was living there then and you know like I I I sort of oh, I've always photographed where I that's the other thing I do besides the rock stuff I, it, I I've always enjoyed photographing communities and you've got to remember here I am like pretty green, come out of England, suddenly in this crazy place called Australia, living in St Kilda. And St Kilda was off the wall in the early 70s. I mm. mean, I remember even then realising that, and this is true, that well, pretty much that it was if you walk down Fitzroy Street, it was honestly easier um, to buy an ounce of grass or get lead, or get laid than it was to buy a litre of milk. I mean... You know, it was, it was it was just like nuts, and so you know, from a photographic point of view, it was really easy to Get come up shot. with some interesting yeah. stuff. You know, and I I was in this crazy shared household with my girlfriend then in 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 St Kilda. Actually, Carol Jerrams was also in St Kilda, and I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she's arguably one of her. Shots have just been sold for it's the most expensive Australian photo ever sold. I mean, wow. it's incredible. But she was, yeah, it's a very famous photo of her. Uh, well, anyhow, yeah. Carol Jaron, I never knew her then, but we're funny enough, we were both kind of photographing St Kilda at the same time. But yeah, right. she didn't really do it like I did. I kind of did the streets. I, mm-hmm. I, I was the street guy. I was like, got in the nitty gritty, yeah. you know, and, 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 that included the shot you just talked about, the one in um, in, uh, in Atkins Street. Yeah, that was part of an exhibition. I mean, it's an absolute joke. My first exhibition I ever had, and I'm not boasting; it's just true. It was a one-man show at the National Gallery of Victoria in 1975, and it was about 
those St Kilda, you know, I took 10,000 negatives in St Kilda and I sort of managed to get a few good, a few decent shots out of it. And, and that became the show. And uh, no, I've never had one, <laughs> I've never had a show there since, but anyhow, you know, in fact, it's been all downhill ever since. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean, yeah, that's only partially true. I mean, of course, I, I have exhibited in other places, but it was a good place to start. And certainly it was a very good learning curve. Um, you know, if you can photograph, you know, people who are off their heads, you know, and sometimes you can be in a dodgy situation, you know, if there's alcohol, it's alcohol, it's not so much drugs. It's, it's, if people have, are alcohol, you know, kind of violent, you've got to be careful. And sometimes I had to be quite careful. Um, yeah, because I would just walk up to people and say, you know, do you mind if I take your photograph? And they'd either be quite obliging or they'd, or they'd just tell you to fuck off. You know, it's just, it was sort of, it was one or the other always, you know. And generally, generally the, you know, they, the former people didn't mind. But on occasions you had to. Yeah, so that was, that was, a, that, uh, I learned a lot from that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that particular photo could have been taken, if you look at that photo, it could be placed anywhere in the world. I mean, it, it, there's no, you know what I mean? It's that international of the two girls in the coffee shop. It yeah, just well, seems... it's, it, yeah, well, thanks. It's, it's a kind thing to say. I think, you know, of all the, you know, I've obviously been influenced by an awful lot of brilliant photographers, you know, people, well, I mean, um, you know, obviously I mentioned Annie Libovitz yeah. from, um uh, you know, who in, in, you know, with the rock and roll stuff, we were yeah. doing stuff at the same time, and, and she obviously went on to very, very great things after that. But there were um, Diane Arbus, for instance, was a very influential photographer for me. She, but she specialised in photographing freaks, and actually did her in. She kind of topped herself in the end. She couldn't. She kind of, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, but um, the thing is, um, I kind of have never wanted to photograph freaks. I've kind of, and that's why one of my books is called The State of Common Life, meaning everyday life, which was about the Western District of Victoria, for instance. You know, I've always tried to photograph um, life as it is rather than looking for necessarily the fringes. But the thing about the St Kilda stuff is everything was on the fringe when you were there, so <laughs> yeah. it didn't really matter, you know. It's kind of like it was all there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I said again, I mean, the you know, the photography. It's interesting with photography too, though, because, you know, it's kind of like what's happened with me is, especially since my wife died, you know, I've kind of wanted to change things completely and not sort of um, be behind the camera. In fact, I want to be in front of it. Front of <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's right. And you've got your two type. bands, uh, the Black Belts and the Tumbling Dice Band. Yeah, well, the Black Belts is a four-piece high-octane rhythm and blues band that, you know, it, it, around here. And, I mean, we'd love to play the Dogs Bar in St Kilda. I mean, we absolutely could come out of St Kilda and, play i mean it's, the band is a really good band I mean, we're basically playing pub rock in its uh, pub rock in its original sense which means the dr feel good sense that mm. 
that sort of sound, um, yeah. which was the early 70s. They were a really influential band. They weren't really, really very well known out here, but in the UK, you've got to remember in the early 70s, it was all pretty limp-wristed. I mean, you know, you had, what, Mark Bolan and, I mean, he was pretty good, but, I mean, I photographed him too, actually. But, I mean, you know, like T-Rex and you had, I don't know, Yes and bands like that, yeah. you know, prog rock and... Mm. ABBA or something, but there wasn't much. Even the Stones had gone off the boil a bit by the sort of 1974 for a bit, you know, and so there wasn't much around. And then Dr. Feelgood came along and started playing pubs with this really up-tempo R&B and people said, whoa, look at this. Yeah. And you got people like Joe Strummer and Johnny Rotten and God knows who else used to go and see the Feelgoods and say, and I swear they would have said, no. I mean, they loved them. Mm. And I almost reckon they would say, oh, well, look, why don't we? You know, let's, let's do this. We'll just play three chords, mate. And that's how punk rock. I mean, honestly, I don't think punk rock would really have, well, of course, Iggy Pop, you know, is as much to do with punk rock as anyone. But then again, you know, without Dr. Feelgood, I don't think it would have started in England that, you know, that huge change that happened in the mid-70s without them. So that's why they're such an interesting band. I've only seen footage of uh, Dr. Feelgood, but what strikes me is the guitar player who keeps walking up and down the stage. And it's like a military sort of stance, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, the bass no, player well, does it. <laughs> yeah, they did. You know, they're out of yeah. sync. You know, they're not doing it together. Wilco, Wilco Johnson. I mean, yeah, he was, you know, he was unbelievable. That's right. Him and the bass player used to walk walk up. And actually the bass player always used to have trouble keeping up. Because he was off. They were all, that's why the band broke up. I mean, these things happen. I mean, because you had three alcoholics basically in the band and then Wilco, who was a speed freak. Well, you know. That's a recipe for a total disaster. (laughs) And I'm not really laughing because they did break up. But, I mean, yeah, yeah, he – he and Wilco was unbelievable, though. I mean, he was a really interesting guitarist. And, you know, like, do you know their first album, he insisted that it be released – this is 1974. And there was a sense to this. They're a four-piece, right? And he liked basically live in the studio. And he said, look, I want it released in mono. I don't want stereo. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like, <laughs> look, we don't want them, especially in the early 70s where you often put the drum kit coming out the left and the bass out the right. It was, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's really separated out, right? And he said, no, that's ridiculous. You know, we want it all out of each side. And so he had this massive argument. with the, But anyhow, and then, it, then it came out. And, uh, and I've got a great qu- quote written on the studio wall here. I really like it, you know, seeing me, you know. It's like, what is it? Yeah, that's it. Overdubs are for pansies. <laughs> it's really get it, good. Get it right. Get I mean, it right it's the just, first time. You know, you just really like playing live, yeah. and I, which I do too, actually. I mean, all our recordings are live. And and I know I mean, because uh, you're the most else, but, you're, yeah, you're you're a pretty energetic type of guy on stage because I I've never seen anyone do push ups on stage before. <laughs> Well, you know, oh, third down black belt. That's why we call the black belt. So I got third down in taekwondo. But the, it isn't only because the original guitarist, I mean, Dave's the most gentle guy. Dave Gibbs was the most gentle guy you'd ever meet, but he was actually a cage fighter. 
you know, USC. I mean, you you wouldn't want to tangle with Dave, but I mean, you know, we were the black belts, so we never had any security issues. The geese. <laughs> Was, that was the plus, yeah. But, well, you're very but, energetic. Yeah. You're very en- energetic and you've got a lot of charisma on stage when you perform. Well, it's such fun. Yeah. You know, it's the funnest thing. Well, almost the funnest thing, isn't it? You know. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's an old cliche to say it, but it really is true because what you give out, you get back and then you give it out and it just goes round and round. And not that we're playing in front of huge crowds in Port Ferry yeah. <laughs> or um, Warrnambool. But then again, we could, you know, honestly, we even the other band, Tumbling Dice, which is the rolling seven-piece Rolling Stones band, is authentically a really good band. And we're not, I don't like calling us a cover band as such. It's a celebration of the Stones music, mm. really, from particularly looking at the 68 to 72 period, you know, when they, that was their amazing period when they put out, well, you'd know this, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Please, Stingy Fingers and Exile on Main Street, all in four years. Yeah. I mean, four unbelievable records. Yeah. I think Stingy. And Pete, I love that story with, have you heard this one? Like, you know, when they put out Beggar's Banquet, it's like, as today, you know, you'd put the single out. For, well, they put the single out first, right? Mm. That came out three months. So the single comes out. Three months later, they put out Beggar's Banquet. But they yeah. sort of said, oh, sod it. We're not putting a single on the album. Sheer waste of vinyl. We've got all this other great stuff. You know, what, what, why would we do that? You know, so it never, the single never went on the album. And Beggar's Banquet, of course, is brilliant. It's got Sympathy for the Devil on it. It's got God knows what else. But you know what the single was? <laughs> Never on it. It was Jumping Jack Flash. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's unheard of that you wouldn't put a, you yeah, know, a that, single of that caliber on your record yeah. these days. But that's, that's what interests me about the Stones, that they were really into their arse in the same way the Beatles were, you mm. know, at that stage. Uh, you know, really, it was a – well, everyone knows it. I mean, it's – from almost a renaissance musically in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. There's a great book called 1971, by the way. Is it Roger Hollingsworth? It's about 1971, and he makes an argument about 71 as possibly being the greatest year in rock and roll ever, even though the Beatles had broken up by then, and he makes a pretty convincing case. I mean, the Stones actually recorded... No, they released Stingy Fingers in 71, didn't they? Oh, well, that, that's an unbelievable record. I mean, there was a so, lot of there was a lot of change just in society, you know, coming f- from the mid '60s into the early '70s. Like culturally, mm. uh, it was mm. it was like a different. It was it was so vast the difference between conservative, a conservative Western world to more of a uh, liberal. It's really that's it, so so true, and it's so easy to forget that you know when you, um, you know, you've got to look at. In the 60s, if you were playing rock and roll in England, and this is really not an exaggeration, if you were playing rock and roll in the 60s in England and even the early 70s, you were a delinquent as far as the general population was concerned. Like, you're fucked in the head. Yeah, I mean, no, honestly, you're like off the planet. You are a moron because you're playing rock and roll. 
Now you can go to university and learn how That's to do right. it. I mean, it's like mainstream, right? They've got courses, haven't they? You know, it's like, it's easy to forget that, how subversive, you know, it was, you know, and how, you know, we've lost that edge now. And that's, that sort of bothers me. But it is one of the reasons that I am very attracted to that era. Anyhow, mm. coming back to the Stones from 68 yeah. to 72 when they were. And, of course, they had Mick Taylor, the amazing guitarist with them then, who was probably their, well, definitely their greatest lead guitarist ever but he, he looked but, so out of place though with the rolling stones he, he just didn't look like like ronnie wood looks like a rolling stone but, yeah he's I more mean, of a larrikin in yeah. fact didn't he have a band called the larrikins or something i think ronnie wood but he he um do you know what i mean like it's yeah of, absolutely you know, he's he's much i mean yeah i mean you're right mick taylor was a bit like bill wyman yeah. a bit of a statue yeah, where he'd just stand there right. and but actually, and of course, Bill Wyman was an amazing bass player yeah. too, completely oh, yeah. underrated. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, but Mick Taylor, yeah, he was, you know, um, oh, what's that like? What's the track called? You know, the end of Sticky Fingers, where it just goes into this amazing Santana-esque jam. Yes, yeah, that's... Um... Oh, what's it fucking called? You know, you know what it's I called. I hear you knocking. No, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And um, you know, you know how that came about. The tape just—they just left the tape running, and yeah. well, none of that was scripted. It just happened. Yeah, that's it. Great. Yeah. It's, that's a great tune, and that part, that breakdown part that they jam out to, is incredible. Yeah, it's really it's, amazing. It's an and amazing. That, that just happened. Yeah. yeah. And the beginning of that song where Keith Richards hits those chords, that's the best intro yeah. to any rock and roll guitar intro. It's like the angriest. And the interesting thing is I've never understood the Stones. They never do it that way live. The way they do it live, and they even by the 70s they were doing this, They would, when they did that track live, it was almost done in a sort of... Um, a canter rather than a gallop. It was as I don't know why. <laughs> Tell you yeah. where to do it. We're going to do it like the original. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, that's right. Yeah, whatever. That's right. But um, yeah, but I mean, you know, the Stones. I mean, you know, if you go online and look at their uh, their early seventies stuff, like Live at the Marquee. I mean, it is amazing. Yeah. 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 Whatever. But then again, there were an awful lot of great bands, as we all know. Then, but. Yeah, mm. I mean, what, what a, I want to just get back to the photography just slightly, just to get mm. your opinion on, because um, it's a different world now as the digital age has overtaken the art of photography. Do you think something has been mm. lost through the transition? Yeah, well, yeah, but you know, change is as good as a holiday. But I've got all the digital gear up there, but I, you know, I've never liked it. And it's really interesting, and I kind of realised why. And I tell you what, it is. Like with a with a digital camera, you sort of go click. Well, this is you basically you don't you don't just go click. That's the point. You go, you hold your finger down, and you take about twenty five frames, bang, 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 and then bang, 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 bang. and before you know it, you've taken about three thousand or something, and then you go home and you basically take the photograph again because what you do is you look through all these photos and you say, oh, no, that's, uh, no, 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 that's been, uh, oh, that's the one. So you've done it again. Now, 
there was a photographer called Henri Cartier-Bresson, very famous um, French. Um, he actually co-founded the Magnum um, photo journal, photo journalistic, um, uh, what's the right word? Company club, whatever it is. You know, the amazing organisation that's that's a photo journalist. But he he, ter he he coined the phrase the decisive moment. And and there's this great story of him going to photograph. I think it was him going to photograph President Kennedy in the early '60s, where you know, he, and and like even then, generally, you know, people would walk in with a couple of assistants and that, but. These days, if Annie Livovitz, and she does this sort of thing these days, went to photograph Trump, God forbid, but say she did, she'd literally be there with an army. I mean, there'd be like about 20 assistants, there'd be cameras, lights, there'd be everything, there'd be like this massive production. Okay, that's how you do it now. So go back to 1964 or three or two, whatever it was, and in 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 walks Cartier Bresson, right? Well, I think it was him, yeah, with his battered up Leica, one camera, like really beaten up. And and, and he says, Well, can I meet the president? So they in here, he went in and he said to John Kenny, just oh, let's just talk. Let's just have a chat. So they just sort of talked about things for about half an hour or 20 minutes or something. And then suddenly he says, hang on, Mr. President, just hold on. So he picks the camera out and goes, right, that's it. Yeah. Got my shot. See ya. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, I think he took a couple more, but you know what I mean? It's like the decisive moment. So what you do, this is the difference. You know, often... If you take a photograph, you, in a sense, let the photograph take itself. Mm. You're just the medium between what that is and what the end result is. That's what yeah. a photographer is. So you're kind of, you wait. It's in, all intuition. I mean, after all, if you take a photograph at 125th of a second, why didn't you take it at another, any one of the other 124th? Mm. that are in that second now don't tell me don't tell me that's an academic decision it's not it's mm. a, an intuitive decision yeah. and that's what's been lost from in my book from uh, and of course there's brilliant photographers these days mm. doing amazing work yeah but there is something also to be said about i mean black and white when you're with film, when you're in the dark room, and it's just worth pointing this out, when you're doing a complicated print, and actually that Muddy Waters print, that's this is a print I've actually done in the dark room, that. Now, when I made that print, it wasn't just enlarger, expose, shove it in the developer, oh no. There's heaps of what you call burning and dodging, and that means you're adding and subtracting light with your hands and bits of card and shit like that all over the place to balance it out to where you want it and then you develop it. Now, when, you, when, when you're doing a complicated print like that, there's no way you can make two the same. Yeah. It's impossible. Like they're all going to be slightly different. Now, that in itself is interesting because, you know, in Photoshop, if you're a digital shop, you, you know, you muck around and then you could print a million and they're all identical. So yeah. there's... There's something about the magic of the, it's actually the inexactness of the 
black and white process and the 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 darkroom the inexactness of the the darkroom process that makes it that's the magic <laughs> that's the difference yeah i guess it's similar mm. to audio where analog against digital uh, analog oh really yeah, yeah well, well you mean tape versus tape, yeah and, I love tape hiss yeah, when I yeah, hear it yeah, in recording That's right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, because once I mean, it, I suppose that's not what you're meaning, though. What do no, you no, mean? I, I mean that sonically uh, when you record onto tape, there's even if you're distorting, you're going into the red, it, you don't hear the yeah. distortion. You're hearing the tape, that's the oxide break up, so it's going into the ether type of thing oh that's really interesting you say that you yeah. know that occurred to me just the other day when i was listening to um james brown's original 1961 recording of lost someone mm. which is mind-blowing i mean the live one on live at the apollo is mind-blowing too for different reasons but the original um you can hear it his voice it's yeah. like it's over modulated yeah. when he's yeah. hitting the high notes yeah, and yet yeah. Fuck, it sounds amazing. Yeah, it sounds amazing. That's what you're talking about, Yeah, that's about, what I'm talking it? about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, see, a lot of people now would think that that would be the wrong thing to do. That's the weird thing Oh, they probably it, would. You know? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, isn't it true too, Pete, that with digital, because it's all pluses and minuses, yeah. at one point it's got to cut off. That's right. But with analogue, I mean, I know we're only talking nanoseconds. It actually never cuts off. And that's why it sounds so live. I can only, even a studio recording, doesn't it? It sounds live, a really good analog, play through analog gear. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, it's that's why I buy vinyl still. I mean, yeah. I still buy CD. I do everything. But, I mean, vinyl, it does have, it really does have it. I just bought the Teskey Brothers newish one on yeah, vinyl. Yeah, great. Yeah, for instance. Yes, no, they're doing yes. great work. And that was, yeah, and that, that's recorded, isn't it, on 24 track? Yeah, I think so. I'm not too sure how they recorded it. Is. About you, you know their first album's called Half Mile Harvest? Yeah. You know why it's called that? Uh, is it because, has it got something to do with Neil Young? Or, it or, looks a little bit like that, yeah, and that yeah. absolutely, yeah. And even the cover is a is, the cover art, yeah. But it's called Half Mile Harvest because that's the amount of tape you use to record right. the album. Half mile, <laughs> half mile of tape. Half mile of tape. They've got this. Have they got a Neve? I don't know anything about sound, really. Yeah. About that. They got, is it Neve? They've got yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Well, Neve will want or something. Neve was one of the most popular mixing consoles in the seventies, early eighties. Or maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. And then, and then, they've and, got and, one of them. And they're the, so, oh, they got twenty-four track, two-inch Studer. Studer. That would make sense. The, the two-inch recorder. Tape. I yeah. think it's that. Yeah, yeah. Because they come from your area, don't they? Those boys. Do they come from around? No, their, they're from Warrandyte. Aren't they're they? from Warrandyte. Well, the okay. studios in oh, Melbourne right. in Warrandyte. Okay. Okay. I thought they originated from around. Port Ferry, somewhere around there. No, best known muso around here would be Shane Howard from Goanna. He lives about a K from here. Yeah. Um, Actually, Archie Roach lives in Kalani, a K from here also. Okay. 
So he's, he's, yeah, you know, as it happens. You've got some. Really... No, I don't think the. Um, I don't think. Um, you've got some really talented musicians in your area. Actually, there are. This is a really interesting area, the Port Ferry region. It's a very Port Ferry itself, very arty little town. I mean, it's only two and a half thousand people, and yet there's a real large number of you know painters, writers. Mm. Sculpture, photography, you know, every musos, obviously. There's a lot of, yeah, you're right. A lot of, lot of, um, yeah, there are. I mean, probably, what's the other really known? Mel, I mean, Warnables, which is only 30 k's from Port Ferry, of course. There's Airborne come from, oh, Warn- yeah. you know, Airborne. Yeah, the, yeah. You yeah. know them? I have, they're, I do know them. Um, yeah, I mean they're huge yeah. on the festival scene overseas. I think, and they're very loud. They're, they're literally from here. Um, yeah, they're very loud. <laughs> yeah, they played the Whalers Hotel in yeah. Lybrick Street about three years ago. Apparently, some of the windows broke. Yeah, oh, I could imagine something like that. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, they're incredible. Uh, so, five so, million so, watts. So you moved. Bar. You moved to Tower Hill in the late 1980s. Uh, what, ser- what was a series of events that led you to play and sing in Tumbling Dice and the Black Bouts? Well, Carol died. My yeah. wife died. And that's really what, you know, I did have a band in the 80s once, you know, where I, I fluked it actually. I, re- I recorded um, a cover of, um, of, of I'm Bored, you yes. know, um, yeah. Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop. Yeah. Yeah. And then Triple R played it a real lot. And because of that, we ended up doing a film clip. And everyone, because of my photography background, I kind of, I've got, you know, a lot of people basically came and worked for that. Because it really was for a film with pre video. It was like, it <laughs> shot in 16 mil yeah. film. And, um, and um, they cost a fortune in those days, you know, to make. In this case, it didn't because everyone worked for nothing and it was just the cost of the stock and the processing of Cinevex and that sort of stuff. But And anyhow, that ended up on Rage, on Night Shift, on The Noise, on all the TV things. You know, this was my 15 minutes of fame. And then Carol got pregnant and I realized, oh, God, I better earn some money. Yeah. So, um, you know, I dropped all that. But yeah. then, you know, after she sadly died a few years ago, I thought, right, um, yeah. In fact, on my 62nd birthday, I sat up in bed. I said, I know what I want to do. I want to sing in a band. And I'm, I'm quite proud of what I've done. I've yeah. got nothing then. There was no, I've got no studio. I didn't know anyone. I yeah. couldn't sing. la da And I thought, well, you know, it's this thing, isn't it? You create your own reality in this world. So, yes. you know, if you, if, you, if you love something and you, you want to do it, and you do it a bit That's like right. you with a yeah. sound production. That's you do right. it and, you know. You keep plotting you away. Do. You, keep, you keep plotting away and uh, whatever comes your way comes your way. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's it. The main thing is to enjoy it. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I would lo- love to play in Melbourne. Oh, God, I hope, you know, I, I, I want to play in Melbourne. I really do because I think both the bands are all right. Oh, and, yeah. Um, yeah. You'll have no problem getting a gig, but it's just a matter of who knows what the aftermath will be once we get through all of this. Will there be oh, any yeah, places left? Isn't it, at the moment. Will yeah, there be any other? Will there be any gigs well, left? You know. Yeah, well, we've got we've got one gig plugged in at the moment in November, <laughs> which we haven't cancelled. <laughs> Everything else has been cancelled. Yeah, 
but um, I mean, it's yeah, a stair state like, of affairs because yeah, you've got to, you've a got roll to, on the fifteenth of May, isn't that's, that it? That's when the, they're going to the make 11th, the next decision. I the eleventh of May, yeah. Eleventh is it? It's the eleventh. Yeah, that's but, so but, but but I can't imagine uh, they'll be giving the green light to live venues or sporting. Uh, no, although WA's know. just said you can have a meeting of ten people, haven't they? Yeah, right. Oh well, that's I think ten a, people can get together. Yeah, oh well, that's good. That's a start. You know, it's a start. Trickle. That wouldn't be enough to pay for the band, though. No, 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 that's right. <laughs> that Ten people, you know. <laughs> Not much on the door there. No, 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 no. But, um, yeah, I was just going to talk about um, your Iggy Pop song because um, oh, yeah. I was going through your YouTube channel and I noticed you had mm. done the Iggy uh, Pop on board it's, tribute in believe it or not it's there still so, no, my so, son put it up there not so, me yeah so so um you you met you you spoke a little bit about it but can you elaborate a little bit more about what actually was the catalyst for you to do that mm. yeah well it was a good story too i mean i i i knew there was some friends of mine um who who had a band and actually, Ian Trelaw was originally in a band, a huge band. They were huge in the 80s in Melbourne called Rock Steady. I mean, they were, I think they were pulling in two grand a night or something wow. in the 80s. Yeah. Like playing huge, you know, really I don't know, in front of a thousand people or more. I don't yeah. know. But Rock Steady were a very successful covers band, uh, probably the original really successful one in Melbourne. And then. Unless I'm wrong, but anyhow, they Ian left and started his own band called I Swim, which was the original band. And then he got a gig at the what was it called? The Grain Store, wasn't that the Grain Store in um, in King Street in yeah. the city? The name of that place. And I was there. I I heard some history going on because it was then when they got the gig to support John Farnham when on his comeback. Um, yeah. Right. And and backstage, and I'd gone on because I was friends with them. I'm sorry, I've gone off the subject. You want to talk about on board, but anyhow, this is worth knowing. That's this. okay. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm back there, <laughs> like, and right in front of me, you know, I'd come on stage and said, "Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Grain Store. Here's I Swim." So they did their set, and then I'm standing the side of the back of the stage there and right in front of me is Glenn Wheatley and Molly Meldrum yeah. looking at this show. And I'm like two feet behind them just standing there like this. And 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 it, it was amazing. Like like Farnham's band, they played about three songs and then um, Glenn Wheatley turned, I heard him say it, turned to Molly Meldrum and said, well, Molly, what do you reckon I should do? And Meldrum turned around at Wheatley and said, Sign him tonight. <laughs> so it was like I was there at that moment that <laughs> the decision was made. For Whispering Jack. So, and, and then Whispering Jack yeah. came about yeah. and all that, you know. so A massive album. It was colossal, it wasn't was it? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, um, but roughly that era, I'd, I'd, yeah, anyhow, me and, and Ian's band used to record. And then I turned up at one of their sessions at five o'clock in the afternoon but i was aware the studio was booked till six and i've they were packing up i was like, sod that is an hour let's not waste it let me have a go yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> i want to i know sung anything yeah i want to have a go and i'm bored yeah because you know, i really like the song you yeah. know i'm bored i'm a chairman of the board i'm a lengthy monologue i'm living like a dog i mean oh, brilliant yeah. lyrics so 
anyhow, we, we cut it and it wasn't half bad. It was eight track. I remember now, eight track. And uh, anyhow, um, yeah, and then it, it, I think I said before, the, the damn thing got played a lot. There's it Triple so, it, R it in sounds those days, great. demos it's, a lot. It sounds great. <laughs> you know, it really does. It sounds like Iggy Drawing Pop. It. it really does sound like Iggy Pop, but in a different manner. Mm. But um, yeah, well, that's good. I mean, I would never try to emulate anyone, but then I do take my cues from these guys. I mean, you know, for me, actually, Iggy Pop and Mick Jagger, from a male vocalist point of view, they're the two. For me, they're the totally. And in fact, with the Black Belts, uh, the original version of it and we may do this again in another form but you know we were doing a lot of other of his amazing songs like i want to be your dog and raw par and you know all those amazing yeah i want to be your dog i almost got chucked off stage here because he came on stage with that with his bloody great marrow bone <laughs> three foot long and then the guitar style so I sort of <laughs> pretending to eat the thing you know in front God. of him. They were appalled. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's show yeah. business, man. It's show business. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, you've got to sort of, got to do know. it. Well, what did Oscar Wilde say? Was it Oscar Wilde? He said something like, "There's only one thing worth." Um, well, no, then. Oh, now I'm going to screw this up. Only one thing. Um, oh, can't remember it. Sorry. It's something like only. There's only one thing worse than not than, than being noticed. It's not being noticed. noticed. But it, yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. um, yeah. I just I just want to quickly get to this uh, the the Port Melbourne South Melbourne uh, documentary that you made. So you you made a documentary. Oh, you've seen that? Yeah. So, so you made a documentary in the mid 1980s detailing when the, the gentrification of South Melbourne and Port Melbourne was occurring. And the, cult, and the cultural change was significant of these areas, many, mm. mainly of the close-knit communities with, uh, with both areas, South Melbourne and Port it Melbourne. It was. Well, Bay, you know, like Port Melbourne in the 80s, even then, you know, it, was, it really was a village. It was not like any – I mean, Williamstown was a little bit like it, but nowhere else in Melbourne. It was this very sort of – insular small community though i mean i remember the hardware shop in bay street it was called earl's timber yard it was one of those amazing shots where you'd walk in and the you know the the floor the, the floor it was just floorboards you know dust you know like no carpets floorboards you know like mm. the real old style and literally if you went in there and said look i'm looking that shop sold everything. So if you went in there and said, look, I want a bolt from a, it's off the suspension on a 1927 Chevrolet, they'd say, oh, no problem, it's out the back. Yeah. I mean, they, they had everything. It was, you know, that sort of place, you know, and the community really was, it was like a village. And so when the station pier, huge development was suggested, there was a lot of what, not surprising, a lot of concern. Yeah, and I made a, a little film about it that was pretty amateurish because it was virtually the first. I did shoot a lot of video later, by the way, you know, like did films about the folk festival in Port Ferry, went on air in Canada and stuff. But like the, that, that was the beginning of it. And, and it, was a, it was an interesting thing to do because, you know, people did feel very, and of course the, it was all 
futile because of the unfortunately, unfortunately, because the the development was built oh, in yeah. the end. Yeah. And, 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 you know, but, you know, that's the, that's what's happened all the way around the world, including Melbourne. I yeah. mean, Ligon Street in the 70s and the 80s was completely different. I mean, I remember seeing the sports playing live just off like in, in a lane, just off Tiamo there, you know, in the 70s. It was amazing. They're playing on the back of a truck and it's on the front of this wall that was had graffiti all over it. Yeah. And Steve Cummings and Martin Armanger and they just cranking out all this amazing. Yeah, it was probably I would have seen your brother would have been there too, yeah. probably. <laughs> you know. That 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 era was, you know, Ligon Street wasn't gentr I mean, you know, there was no sports girl, there was no this or that. Yeah. It was all yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's progress, isn't it? It happens um, Any new music projects coming up in the next year, especially with uh, the COVID-9 in the picture? Oh, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I've been mucking around. Actually, my son's doing something interesting. You know, my son, James, is 32 years old, and he's, he's he, he his little company, Common Ventures, I'm not boasting, but he's he won Best TV Out of the Year last year, his little company. It's only 15 people in it rather than he's a co-owner and there's like he's up against all these advertising agencies like Ogilvy Mather and Clemengers with hundreds and hundreds of employees and multi-million dollar budget. And they, but anyhow, cut a long story short, he's been making this film. Um, <clears throat> it appears to be about me, funnily enough. I don't know why, but well, I I do know why, yeah. and it, it's just his idea, not mine. Yeah. Like I shot thirty hours, no, no, I shot a hundred hours of him growing up. Yeah, I even shot him being born, <laughs> but literally, and then I mean, as it happens, but you know, it was a camera, but um, yeah, a hundred hours of footage, and and then and then when Carol died, I shot thirty hours of footage of me. Like talking about because I thought I'll make a film about grief from a personal perspective. So I thought, oh, and so I, I just turned the camera around. But yeah, it was so harrowing. Unfortunately, in the end, I couldn't look at any yeah. of it. So I, I just gave that thirty hours plus the other hundred hours to James and said, oh, maybe you want to check some of this out. So well, look, and he did, and he started making this film that appears to be called Finding Richard at the moment because he says, I, I know about 12 versions of my dad. Yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of... <laughs> so it's sort of about... Yeah, but the funny thing is it's sort of about him. Yeah, that's that's what he's on about. It's, it's actually what interests him is what 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 is the creative spirit? What is it that makes people want to write or want to paint or want to photograph or make music or make music like you do that's a creative thing too what is it that makes people want to do that and it's it, it, it you know what is that and that's what he's on about in this and it's probably the same with me because i do paint and as well and you know and you know la di da di da but i mean it's it, it's anyhow so what am i doing in relation to that and possibly a bit of music like there's a nick lowe song called uh which he, he actually wrote for his father-in-law that was Johnny Cash at that yeah, time because right. he was married. Nick Lowe was married to Carleen Carter, right, I think. Okay. And it's called The Beast in Me. Okay. 
the beast in me is caged by frail and fragile bars <laughs> and it's a really good song yeah. he, and Nick Lowe does it acoustic it's a really good song but the way I read it it's the beast in me is kind of it's about what is this beast that needs to be expressed you know the creative thing so I might try and record that for instance and do that's the sort of thing I could do when it's a bit shut down maybe uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> so yeah, no, there's lots of stuff to be done. I mean, that's for sure. You know, bring it on. I say, onwards and upwards. That's my motto. That's right. Bring it on, man. That's right. Onwards and upwards. That's right. I'm I'm uh, staying afloat in a leaky boat, but uh, I'm I'm doing okay. <laughs> well, I hope it doesn't sink, no. Pete. It doesn't look like it is yet. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Oh well, 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 th- well I want to. Pr- In a leaky boat. Who's that? What's the What's that line from? Who's that? Is that crowded yeah, that house? Was, no, that was that split. Split ends. Yeah, they. Well, they, they spent six years in a leaky boat. That's it. I'm staying afloat in a leaky boat. Sorry. Staying afloat in a leaky boat. You are. That's it. Staying afloat. Well, that's a nice segue here because Phil Jones, who's the guitarist in both um, the Black Belts and um, Tumbling Dice is the brother um, of Peter Jones, who was in Crowded House before he sadly died. He was one of the two drummers they had that died. And he lives up the road. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite an amazing, well, not an amazing thing. It's quite a sad thing, isn't it, that, Two drummers out of uh, Crowded House have passed away. It happened in Spinal Tap, but it wasn't quite <laughs> the know, same there, was I know. it? <laughs> the curse of I the mean, curse of Crowded House. Yeah, no, it's tragic. Yeah. It was, I mean, yeah, the first guy topped himself, of course. Yeah, you know, like he's rotten. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But, um, um, yeah, I mean. Um, Having said that, on a slightly lighter note, yeah. I did watch St- Spinal Tap again recently. It's a very <laughs> funny film. Yeah, have you I, seen it recently? I haven't, but I remember I was working at Woodstock Studios in the uh, mid to late nineties, and James Black said to me because I used to scratch my head about how some of the musicians were behaving, and he said, "Just watch Spinal Tap, and it'll make sense. Everything will make sense to you." So, so True. I went to the video store. I watched it, and I and I couldn't believe it. I'm going, I actually know people who are like this in real life, <laughs> yeah. and it was. What's even more incredible is that quite a few professional musicians, when that film came out, thought it was a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> it's real. I know. I know. I mean, no. I mean, it was mm. just shocking because I, I, I couldn't believe it. I'm going now. Everything makes sense, and now, and when I went back into the studio and I'd come across people like that or any craziness, uh, I could just go, "Yep, I know where that's coming from." You know, I, could, I can, I could relate it to something, which was, it was like <laughs> therapy for me watching Spinal Tap. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, the rock industry has changed. It has. You know, I've come back to it again. I mean, honestly, as I said before, in the 60s, if you were in rock and roll, you were a delinquent. I mean, that's how you were perceived yeah. by everybody. Yeah, totally. 
you know, now it's a, a respected. Yes. You know, someone uh, dedicated follower of yeah, fashion. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's actually, yeah. you know, you're. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really quite respected yeah. profession. Yes. I mean, Missy Higgins went to Geelong Grammar. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, God, you know, and she's really good, isn't she? Yes, of course. That's right. But, yeah, so anyhow. Sally B. Sally B. Guess I'll make my move. Crazy feet on Robin nothing left to lose. Valley's bleeding anguish, no one looks at me. I'm running out of rope, only one place left to flee. When voodoo strikes, it'll tear apart your head. When voodoo strikes, you wish that you was dead. When voodoo strikes, Tear upon your head 